And I'm making a habit of this being live on Inside the War Room. I haven't done this very often, but here I am once again, uh, Ryan Ray, as always, with my good friend, Mark Rossano. Back, Mr. Rossano, the last time you were on, you were actually on back-to-back times because I was moving and I was out of the fray for a while. I think I put in 14 episodes between your last monthly appearance and this one. So I, I upheld my word um, and we got some got some episodes in. It's good to get you back, though. Uh, you are one of the... Uh, favorite guest of the program so it's good to have you on sir how are you doing it's a pleasure thanks for having me yeah it's always you know always good there's always something different happening in the world as as everything starts to uh sell off a bit after uh china has and asia has struggled but you know the u.s markets have been holding holding in pretty strong at this point okay let, let's we had a little twitter kerfuffle i don't know last monday maybe something like that uh but i sent out a tweet as the, you had a slight sell-off in oil uh, three, four dollars, whatever it was, and I sent out something about you and Big Orn taking a victory lap, um, and it, like people really got all up in arms. <laughs> I don't think people really realize. I don't care when the price of oil moves a dollar or two dollars. Like I really like a scale of one to uh, ten, it's a negative four thousand. I literally care less when the oil goes up two dollars, it goes down two dollars. Mm. I, I don't care at all. It, it really means nothing. Um, for anything that I do or anything that I follow. I'm not a trader. It, it's just, okay, it's just, it's just an observation. I thought it was kind of funny. People take it, it's so funny though. People take it so seriously that like, man, the price is up. And then then you had people come in saying that for 18 months, people had been saying this and people have been saying that. And um, can we all just lighten up on Twitter just a little bit? <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's just funny because one of the things that I always try and, and for those that watch my, my shows regularly know that I'm very clear when I talk about how there are two markets, there's the paper market and there's the physical market. And at times they can disconnect at times they can come together, you know, more often than not throughout my career, they've been closer than they are today. But just because I something fundamentally may not look correct and, you know, there's going to be some some gravity bringing it or keeping it where it is doesn't mean that I'm, you know, I'm very clear. I don't give positioning. I you know that that comes into a whole different compliance world. But there's always these assumptions that like I'm a perma bear. Big old Rin is, is, a, is a perma bear. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm just looking at fundamentals, showing where the physical market is. But it doesn't mean that I'm positioned that way. You know, I'm always moving around being because I, I do trade this. I, you know, these are things that I, I am taking advantage of. And, you know, one of the things for anybody who's been watching, I've been very adamant about what I thought about China, what I thought about Asia in terms of growth. And, you know, you're starting to see that play out in their equity markets. And, and again, that just if you look at the physical market, what the spreads are telling you, what the refiners are doing over there. And now what the equity market is telling you, you, you kind of are starting to see this breakdown, you know, not to say that the U.S. isn't going to be, you know, the prettiest uh, girl at the ugly ball. But, you know, it's going to it's just going to be a very different world in terms of, you know, when do things start start to snap back and we start to see a bit more uh, connection, because that's one of the reasons why I've been more active in grains. I think grains make a lot more sense just because the paper market is trading closer to where I believe the physical market is. As we continue to have, as we were talking before, you hit the go live button. We were talking about, you know, some of these uh, floods, some of these droughts, you know, some of the things that are impacting, you know, th- key areas in Germany, in China, uh, and and some of that fallout. But it, it is funny, like uh, people. But it's fun. It's fine. Everybody can throw shade. Everyone can can yeah. can have their opinion. That that's cool. Like that's what makes a market. That's what that's why you have people buying and selling. You know, I, sometimes, I you know I. 
I would be more apt to be on the uh, on the downside, you know, here. But I said that right right after when we spoke on the the Monday following Fourth of July, and there was a big sell off because I th I don't think people appreciated what OPEC means, where this is going to go from here. You know, we're starting to see some of that softness in demand again, which is showing up in the in the forward physical market. But again, the as the saying goes, you know, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. <laughs> well, so the, the the one thing I've learned, I've done, oh, oil and gas podcasts, you know, close to probably 500 now. I don't know. Um, we've done a couple hundred text oil and gas podcasts and maybe, maybe it's three or four. I don't know. It's hundreds of podcasts. Right. And, and so here's what I learned a long time ago. My perspective on the oil and gas industry is coming from a service side perspective, right? People who work for the people who do the work. Mm -hmm. Okay. The price moving a dollar to literally means nothing to me because, you know, unless it's like, you know, 50, 49 and you're like, oh, okay, well, you know, but if it goes from 62 to 63 and back down to 61, service companies by and large don't care. No. And so, EMPs don't. I mean, it, that's yeah, it, 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 there's gyrations. That's yeah. it, it. There's always been gyrations. Right. I mean, I've, been, I've been in this market for over 15 years. It's right. it gyrates. That's it, yeah. it is what it is. Right now, if you're a trader, maybe you made a bunch of money on that on that move. Maybe you didn't. Whatever. But it's it's so funny because people take the price and how the price moves a dollar or two dollars or three dollars, and I'm like, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of people around the world working in this industry who literally could care less the price moves at all. Um, but if you know, so anyways, I, I, I always find it fascinating because the trader side is so aggressive on the pricing and where it's going. And the reality is if any of us actually knew we wouldn't be talking about it. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the thing. None of us know we're talking about the things that we, that we're looking at, you know um, you know what we think might happen. Uh, but even if you took, so first off, no one can, can reasonably understand all of the data because when you get down to all of the data, that's there's all kinds of demand measures today. But even if you could, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow because mm -hmm. tomorrow, who knows what's going to happen? You could shut down, you could have expansion, you know, war breakout. So you don't. So even with that, so it's it's all these things, and it's just I don't know. It's the the, the pricing people. I'm fine with predictions. I think they're great. I think they're actually great to make because you can say I think the oil is going to be here because of these five factors, and then if you're right. This is why I was right. You could be right because those five, not because of those five factors, because something else that you didn't think about. Or you could mm -hmm. be wrong, and you could say, "Okay, this is." But it, we, we've gotten in a world where just making predictions, talking about stuff, is so <laughs> so crazy. It, it's so it's so funny because I don't come from that world at all. So just to see people get all up in arms when you sit out of this, uh, this kind of a harmless tweet, it's it was quite amusing. So I, I enjoyed it. Sorry if I if. Uh, if you took the brunt of that, but it was, it was fun. <laughs> I know it, it's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm used to it. It's, it's funny just cause when I, when I look at what comes next, you know, I, I like to look at the economic drivers as well. You know, you have to have a conversation of, well, what are wages going to look like? What are prices going to look like? You know, Unilever was the most recent to talk about taking their prices up, you know, 10 to 15%. So between Procter and Gamble, Kimberly and Unilever, that's literally your everyday items, like things mm. that you buy day in and day out, week in, week out. Those are they make that stuff, mm. and and th that is, I think, going to be much stickier and and more problematic, especially as you see uh, the the excess uh, unemployment starting to expire. You're going to start to see that people are going to are going to have to accept the jobs that are being offered because they're being offered the jobs. But you know, one of the slides that we used on the show 
talks about how the the biggest issue right now outside of skills is, is right now skills and wages. That's mm -hmm. where the disconnect is happening. You know, you have people trying to leave industries, go into new industries, and the companies are like, look, I know there's a lot of people unemployed right now. I'm going to wait. You don't have the skills that I want. And I don't really want to train you because I have a backlog and I don't have time. Mm. So, but if I, if I do have to train you, you're going to have to accept the lower wages. And then on the person's side, they're sitting there going, well, there's a lot of jobs out there. So I, I don't, I'm not going to accept these wages. Right. So there's this standoff and, and at some, there's going to be a meet in the middle, but it, it's always, it's just going to take time. And as you come to the other side of this, it's just going to be difficult to see as prices remain sticky, that it, how are, how are they going to react? How are they going to spend? How is spending going to, uh, you, you know, we saw it today in durable goods sales, but not to say that that's surprising because we've been talking about the shift from durable goods to services, but that flash PMI number was, was a bit alarming. It was still expansionary, not saying it wasn't, but you're starting to see things cool off. And, and I think that's going to be uh, giving some mixed signals when you start looking forward to, well, what is that second half going to look like? What is 2022 going to look like? And I think those are some real conversations that have to be factored in when you're talking oil and gas, when you're talking, you know, gasoline, diesel, uh, jet fuel, because I think that's going to be a, a big driver on the uh, over the next, you know, let's call it 12 months. You know, it's funny you talk about the, the job market. I was at church on Sunday and uh, a guy works for I think they do custom made cabinets. So all the houses mm -hmm. being built and remodeling. He said that they have, you know, too many, so many positions. They can't fill them. And they're, they're always putting out asking for people. And he said on, on the most recent post, they had a hundred or 150 applicants come in. Only two people actually showed up for interviews. And so, uh, you know, whatever the number was a hundred or 150, whatever, whatever it was, you know, 98% of those people were just sending in the, the application. so they didn't keep getting their unemployment benefits. And to your point, you know, that that is part of the thing you're trying to measure, which is these people who aren't getting jobs, but they claim they're looking for one. But then there's all these open positions. Well, these people don't even want a job. They just want to keep getting unemployment benefits, right. regardless of what the pay is. They, so. and, and, the, and to that point, I, I think it, it also has to be considered now how easy it is to post a job and how easy it is to apply for a job. Like, I, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I've been... I've had to apply for jobs in the past. And, and when you have, you know, click, uh, click here for quick um, apply, right. like, and all of a sudden, you know, once you build your, 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 your resume, you know, you might have, you know, three or four cover letters, it's just drag and drop. And all of a sudden within an hour, you've applied to 15 jobs. Mm -hmm. And, and I know from, from my own experience that you go through this process and then on the other side, it's, Oh, this, the, the, it was hired internally. There is right. a freeze on this position. This position has now gone away. And it's like, okay, well, why did you interview me for six weeks? Why did I have four rounds of interviews right. if this job didn't really exist? And, and they might be just testing the market. Like, hmm. you know, how many, how much interest is theirs, you know, to be, to make sure that they're paying the person that they are, that they already slated internally to, to hire. Hmm. What are you going to pay them? Well, let's, let's go test the market. And, and I, and then there's also laws where you, you have to make sure that this isn't nepotism. So you have to have things posted for X amount of time. You have to interview X amount of people. So it's always <clears throat> frustrating because you never know like what is real given the ease and some of the legality, like you pointed out with, to get your unemployment benefits. Are you, are you looking for a job? Prove it. Oh, I, I just applied for 10 jobs. Here you go. And it's like, that's 10 clicks. Right. Right. Well, you know, um, and yes, agreed. Another thing is, well, 
I hate giving Big Warren credit here, but we'll give Big Warren credit. Back before the pandemic, this is <clears> 2018. <throat> this has been a while back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Amazon had I don't know 5,000 jobs or something for some kind of engineer, whatever. It was it wasn't a worker, oh, a factory worker. It was a more of a high end job, right. and there was a big debate over college degrees and people being qualified. I, and I'm pretty sure it's Big Warren, and he was like, "Guys, Amazon doesn't have whatever this number was. Amazon Amazon doesn't actually have this many positions open." What they're doing is they're going out there, they're they're putting it out there, they're looking for high qualified people to come in. If they get it, great. If not, they leave it open. And, and it, his point was to your point, which is it's not like you're running a classified ad on the Sunday paper and it costs a bunch of money. Right. You know, it, you just put it out there. It's free. Amazon has a website. They can mm-hmm. put it out there literally whenever they want to. And so um you do see a lot of that going on um as well. Okay. Um so I, I am curious, and I think maybe we talked about this, I don't know. Um at some point, I think even the most ardent person of how great the economy is, we have to have some kind of reset. Like that's just inevitable. Um, mm. My read is talking about unemployment. That's where we would see it. At. So you won't have, so you take like the, the housing crisis um, in 2008, where you see the rates go up, people can't afford anymore. Uh, well, if you got a fixed loan now, you can afford the rate as long as you have a job, right? So like that won't be the issue because your rate's not going to go up. Um, what would be the issue is you lost your job or your job comes to you and says you have to take a pay cut. To me, that seems to be where the potential next housing crisis might loom, um, especially in a period where you've just overinflated the market for the last 18 months or whatever it's been. Uh, what's your read on, on the potential for a housing market um, and where are the weak spots? So when you look at the housing market right now, there's a lot of individuals that have tried to cash out. So they've taken their home equity lines. They've They've tried to Equitize, <laughs> they've tried to equitize, you know, some of the value that has come into their homes. So when you look at that, that really is what created some of the bigger issues as well in, in 07 and 08, where you got to a point and, and we, we got there and now it's actually starting to pair back where you had waivers on um, assessments where you didn't have to assess, appraise at that okay. value. You had waivers on income proof. You had waivers on on a lot of these key pieces, and that started to pare back a bit. But now you have these homes that have this inflated value based on comps. And so people have gone out and said, okay, well, I just got a a notice saying that there's $230,000 additional equity on my home. This company, you know, know, pick your bank, is going to give me $150,000 at an introductory rate. Mm -hmm. At this level, I can go do X, Y, Z with it. So now you have a situation where what happens when that equity goes away? Now you, this is when you start to come underwater and you start to, to see that pressure. And, and that's what we're starting to so the HELOCs, see a bit. More specifically, what you're saying, right? Yes. Okay. And, and the problem is when you can't, you can't turn around and sell it to the same, yeah. in the same way. And let's be fair, taxes are going up. Mm-hmm. So not only are you going to face this rising value, but as your tax rate increases, you know, the resale is going to be much harder. So when you look at that resale, yes, you, you can say that there's, there's low rates, but you still need the down payment. And that's where, mm-hmm. that's where the crux of the problem really comes into play of, do you have that down payment? So when you look at the, the lack of starter homes, you know, the drop in Mm-hmm. The increase of, you know, from let's call it $240,000 to $340,000 in terms of just the median at like home price, that's your, you're taking away the bottom layer and you're increasing the amount of 700,000 and above homes 
that is just pricing people out of the market. They can't build the equity. They can't try to build out. But the other thing, and, and we've come into inflation and some of these different pieces, and you go back to the 70s and 80s, and, and people always say, well, look at mortgage rates. Mortgage rates were 17%. It's like, it's, that's true, 100%. But your money market account was, 13, was you know, right. 14%, and your savings account was 12%. So you actually made money keeping in the bank. So the spread between the two really wasn't that wide when you, and and given this also brought down the price so now you look at this you know if you, if you're have a money market account you're lucky to get 10 basis points and you know your your mortgage is is four you know three and three eighths or, or you know uh four percent and mm. this is this is it's fine but when you start to come to the other side as taxes go up as rates start to creep higher all of a sudden trying to sell that for more than what you bought it for is going to become very difficult. Yeah. I, I, the HELOC, I haven't thought about that. That's a good, that's a good, that's a good point. Cause a lot of things that you buy with a HELOC, you can't get your money back out of really easy. Right. right? So you could go buy a car cause it's a better rate potentially, but, um, but okay, you're stuck with a car. You can't get your money back out. You, if you do a home improvement, then you had to get the equity, you put a pool in. So yeah, that's a good point. I haven't thought about the HELOCs and how they could impact it. Um, um, well, and then and right. then take it to the next level of of volume, right? So um, you had a moratorium on evictions, you had a moratorium on foreclosures. That's now ending. So how much supply is sitting behind a false gate, and all of a sudden this expires, and now you have a new wave of supply that's coming out, and they just want to get their money back. Like so, they are not really looking to make money on this. It's that I just need to get back what I lost. And and I think that's where you could start to see some of this carry forward of, you know, what does that market look like as Case Shiller comes out, you know, up another 18%. You know, you're seeing just these these foolish moves, but that that always bleeds down to what is your rent going to be? Hey, how much is rent going to cost? And and that's where you know some of the stickiness comes in to that CPI calculation because rent and home ownership is you know 42% of that calc. Yeah, we were lucky enough to get out of the house, make a nice profit, and then the rent after HOA fees, their old place, and insurance and stuff is basically basically the same. So we kind of were able to make a pretty much a you know usually if you sell and rent, um, you're going to pay a you know, a pretty premium. Um, so we, we were able to to kind of get the best of both worlds, and so hopefully, hopefully the market will uh, open up. I don't know, maybe <laughs> two years, year two. two what, what do you think? Two years. I've, I've always been saying 18, 18 months to two years, just because it's going to take time for this to happen. I mean, it, it, when you look at, at what it was in 06, when you think about from like 01 through 08, you know, you're not seeing, obviously you're seeing building, but not at the same rate. We, we are net relatively short uh, housing when you think about volume, but we're short in, we're long in, in, in the, the, the million plus, the 700 plus, and we're short in this one area. So essentially we're oversaturating one side of the market and then you have this undervalued side. And and, and this is gonna create, I, I think, an opportunity realistically to maybe build some of the lower end homes or some of the starter homes because, and maybe you start to get some of this pivot that might help alleviate some of the pressure. But you did get that move from the urban to suburban to rural. So there's still some of that conversion. And then that comes into car ownership. You know, the average car now is over 12 years old. Uh, you know, I, I, at this point, I think it's sedans are 13 years old on average with uh, with uh, uh, I think it's SUVs and pickup trucks at about 11.1. Uh, 
So you, this is going to be that, that that next conversion because everyone's like, oh, used car sales are going to come down. You know, look at those prices. It's like, well, the, we're also coming into a fairly big conversion point and there's a lot of supply chain issues. So when you look at some of this underlying cost, but you only move once, you know, that's why we're starting to see those durable goods come down. You will see some of those car prices abate, but I don't think it, they're going to move lower to the point that people are expecting, which is going to keep that that inflation calculation, that inflation, you know, giving way into that stagnation in, in terms of, uh, instead of coming back to normal. So let's talk about humans. <laughs> you, 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 some of these other made me think about this. Um, you know, I'm a big, I'm, I'm, I'm pro human. So I like humans. Maybe we need more humans. Um, you're starting to see kind of this narrative, China, a few months back said, Hey, you know, let's go to the three China policy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I was trying to find the article. I couldn't find it, but I think it was the wall street journal or somewhere today ran an article talking about the U S uh, uh, demographic problem. Um, Europe, there's a great book, what to expect. No one's expecting it. Kind of breaks the problems in, in Europe. Um, you know, what is your read as you kind of look for a aging demographic with the boomer generation in the U S um, there's plenty of people um, at the government, high government level who are saying, hey, you know, if we don't start having more humans, hmm. we're going to have a problem uh, in the next 30 to 40 years, maybe a little bit further out than that, but it's coming. Um, yeah. are, do you buy into that? you disagree with that? What's your thoughts on the on that? On that? So it's when you look at it in a bubble, you know, the, the going rate is you need the average woman to be having 2.1 children to keep constant. Mm -hmm. So you need, and then anything above that, you know, as you start to get to 2.3 and above, that's when you start to have, obviously you're not having a third of a child, but you get the idea in terms of averages, you know, right now we're at about 1.7, but we, America is still a place that people want to immigrate to. So when you factor in immigration, when you factor in people still coming to this country, we're still growing in all the right spots. Because when you think about where there's a, a very young populace, you have to look to parts of Latin America, parts of Africa, parts of uh, the Middle East. And there's a lot of migration that's happening, especially people that have the means to do so from those regions and into others. But when you look at other areas and, and you brought up China, you know, that's, that's a big problem because China is not as receptive to immigration. They're not as receptive mm -hmm. to having those individuals coming in. So it becomes an internal problem. And, and the, and the, and this is one of the things we did a show on this and, and I think it was the financial times did a, a deep dive on it. I know Trivium did, uh, th there's been a, a bunch of different, uh, you know, papers and, and consulting groups that have shown the hidden costs of having a child in China. And even though school is free, it's not like they talk about the bribery. They talk about the, the needs for, for education, the, the, uh, I'm sorry, further other education. And they're now cracking down on that. When you look at the tutors, the private side, because there were all of these hidden costs. And that really came down to, even though you're telling me I can have more than one child, I can't afford more than one child. So yeah, okay, you want me to have three, but I can't afford it because of the bribes, because of the tutoring, because of the extensive things I need to do to get this individual into the best school possible, to get into this school at this rate. And that becomes a, a big overhang. And that is one of those hidden costs. Now, take that to the other side and we come to the jobs market, the wages market. And 
when you look at at China, there's been a very slow wage growth at, at a uh, a broader level. You know, you can say that oh well, they've lifted everyone out of poverty. One, they've moved that that goalpost several times, so their goalpost of poverty has has shifted down. But there's also middle medium wage growth has been there, but it, it's still not enough to incentivize or afford that additional child, that additional individual. Mm -hmm. And that's become a, a, the crux of the issue. A and the U.S. has more opportunity, more uh, a bit more land, a bit more growth and openness to immigration that others have, which is uh, an issue we've seen in Japan countless times. You know, they're, they're on the shrinking side, same with Russia. Where China is going to have to make a decision, you know, are they going to become more open to immigration, or are they going to have to try to find a way to incentivize and support this? But when you look at their debt levels, when you look at the stimulus they've tried to put through on consumers, investments, all of these things, they, they're they're just not in a position to stimulate the same way that they have, and that's where I think you're going to start to see the pressure points now carrying that into pension funds. You know, that's, uh, I think, the bigger issue that that doesn't get the, the press it, it deserves. It did in 08, but then it kind of went away when you look at, well, how are you going to pay into this? Because now we're at a point where six to seven people are taking out of it where for the uh, two that are putting in. So when you look at this shift, this comes back to housing and the rise of property taxes, because you're going to have municipalities, states, federal government that has pension funds that or underfunded, you know, you can't make any money owning a treasury bond. So you're in these risky assets that might go belly up, might not, but you're, you're going to have to pay these individuals out and you're not getting that payment in, which that is where you're going to get the bigger problem over the longer term as these pension funds whittle down and you just don't have as much, as many people paying in to keep that going forward. Because in the sixties and seventies, for every two people you had taking out uh, money, you had you know five or six putting it in. So it, you were working in a strong, uh, on a strong footing, and we just don't have that. It's actually completely flipped at this point. Well, you have uh, yes, agreed. Another thing is is that when you think about service industries, um, if you don't have a lot of humans to handle service, then you had to have some kind of technology to overcome that. Um, and right. so at McDonald's, you might say, well, there's a kiosk there or at Walmart with the checkout thing. But when you talk about services where like uh, you want human to human contact, um, like nurses, nurses, doctors, uh, stuff like that, um, you know, physical therapists, um, you know, if you're not careful, you will find your plumbers, you will find yourself in a, in a spot to where you don't have enough trained people to handle these jobs um, for the population. And these, these services will be in high demand, which will cause its own problem, which is why I always had a problem with Thanos wanting to snap um, in Marvel. It's like, okay, listen, if you're going to cut out 50% of the population, we've got to talk about which 50% you're cutting out here. Because, you know, if you if you accidentally cut out all the plumbers, we're in a, we've got a right. problem here. So we need, a, we need to ratio this out properly. And that's where we're starting to see the, the pivot go back, where you're, you know, you're incentivizing people going to – trade schools, you're, you're starting to see that move because it's just not worth coming out of college with $175,000 in debt to, to do what, like, what, what is your skill on the other side where if you're a plumber, if you're a welder, I mean, you can come out making 85, $90,000 and 
the company that picks you up or the apprenticeship, you know, they either covered it or maybe you have a few thousand dollars in debt and now you're instantly making money and you're starting to build your craft. There's, I mean, look at our infrastructure. I mean, look at the, the need for the infrastructure bill is real. Yeah, unfortunately, it's going to have so much fat in it and, and other types of uh, pork that you're going to, it's going to be disgusting, but realistically we need it and we need people to carry out those jobs, to carry out those needs. And I think that's going to be uh, this big, um, this big movement. And, and I think that's going to be a, an exciting opportunity because hopefully it brings some of the college costs down because now you're going to have to compete more readily and attract some of this. But it's going to put more plumbers to work, more electricians out there, more welders. And, and I think that's something that we need. And let's be fair. It's a good job. It's a well-paying job. It, it's physically demanding. Yes, but mm -hmm. there's opportunity on that. And there's a lot of things that can be built off of it. And, and let's, and some kids are good with their hands and they're not really great at school, right. but that doesn't make them stupid. That just makes them good at something different. You can still be intelligent and not want to read Shakespeare. You know, it's okay to want to pick up a wrench and play around with an engine. That's okay. We need to incentivize that because that's where there's someone that can make a good living, that 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 job is now in higher demand. And I think we need to cultivate that instead of saying, oh, no, put that wrench down and go get a liberal arts degree where they're not going to be happy. They're not going to be satisfied themselves. They're going to be depressed. You know, look at depression. Look at all of these things that are coming up as we're trying to dictate, you know, let someone tinker, you know, they'll come up with something really cool that we never even considered. They'll come up with a new process, a new assembly line, a new machinery. Like we need to let innovation and the business cycle take its place and incentivize these, these kids that, you know, don't really like to, to read all that much, not to say that they should be illiterate, but if they want to pick up and, and go to a trade, uh, more power to you. Well, okay. You hit on kind of a, sensitive spot there for me um it's it, it's so agreed um the the first off we need to let the market work in the market and what i mean by that is we have to quit to your point over incentivizing people to go to college here take this really cheap loan that no one would give you for anything else but mm -hmm. go spend you know 75 to 150 thousand dollars on college but you know whether or not you can get a job to cover this or not you know no one would give you that type of loan in the real world um, at 18 years old. And yet for college, we just boom, sign a blank check. Um, so, so we need to let the market compete to where plumbers, electricians, welders are actually able to compete with uh, kids coming out of high school, trying to recruit them. Whereas instead of you get a four year party degree, um, you know, and you get a bunch of debt. So, so I, so I agree a hundred percent. The second thing is, and I saw the Biden administration, kudos to them is working on lowering the barrier of entry. I don't know to what all, of uh, industries are, they're trying to work on, but they're trying to lower the barrier of entry. This is something that that's, I'm a big advocate of. I was listening to, uh, I had Carol Roth on the podcast, The World on Small Business. And in her book, she details, I think it's Indiana or Illinois, mm -hmm. you know, the the law on braiding hair, like you had to get licensed to braid hair. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's stupid that you had to get a license to braid hair. I mean, I braided my daughter's hair at the house here before. Um, right. Thankfully, I didn't need a license. And if I did, they come arrest me because I'm not getting one. But you just stop and think we've, we've gotten to the spot to where to braid hair. Now, I'm not a plumber. I'm not an electrician. I, I don't I don't want to speak about those industries as if I have um, the practical knowledge to say what the barrier of entry should or shouldn't be. Um, but what I do know is the industries where I have observed testing and standards to get in, usually those testing and st those testing standards aren't very good. They're very mm -hmm. minimal. 
Um, you have to be a pathetist. That doesn't mean you can actually wire, like an electrician, doesn't mean you wire a building and, and land surveying. It doesn't mean you actually survey. You can answer the questions. You can't actually solve the problems that you'll find um, in, in the real world. So back towards the more um, apprenticeship model, I'm a big advocate of that. That's where you need to get. And the final thing is, in the age of the entrepreneur, why don't we allow more plumbers to come out to be entrepreneurs? There's nothing wrong with being a solopreneur as a plumber or mm -hmm. having a handful of your buddies come work for you. And so those are the types of things that, that I think that you're you're dead on. And if you want to build a middle class back, we say the middle class is eroding, start there. Yeah. And and allowing them to, to build equity in things that don't require a Robinhood account and and actually building value that they can they can earn by putting money in and actually being smart with their capital instead of just yo yoloing on some Tesla calls. Like there's, <laughs> you know, we've created this, this negative feedback loop that needs to be broken and it's, it's going to hurt. And, and that's something like when, when I, when I talked to my father about the inflation and, and some of these things, that conversations that we had, cause I said to him, I was like, you know, when was the last time you really were concerned about inflation? And, and he had to think about it. And he's like, you know, probably 81 to 83 was the last time I was concerned about it. And you think about what, what Volcker did and Volcker comes out and says, look, we're going to, I'm going to cause some pain. Uh, it's going to hurt, but it's going to be for the long-term sanctity of, and, and security of the economy. Now there's things that he did in terms of changing the way some of the calculations were to make them look better. I'm not saying that he is, you know, you know, everyone has their faults and you can always look back and, emulate the only, only the good things, but let's be fair. Like there's always good and bad, but he had the right of idea of how do we create a long-term future with what's behind us? And it's always letting the business cycle work. Like don't protect zombie companies. Like why do we have companies that are borrowing billions of dollars and making nothing like in terms of you know revenue, like there, that's not a sustainable model. And we need to really loosen up because we need to make that capital available to the entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to get someone who's going to say, look, I'm going to invest in that guy because I believe in him. I think he has a good head on his shoulders. He has good skills. This is going to work. And, and you just don't have that. You have it, it tied up in some of this, this garbage that just really has no life, life expectancy outside of it's a way to play the fed game until that game is over. Okay. So I had a thought and I lost it. You said something really smart there. And I was going to ask you, God, you were, you were just, you were on a good rift. And I was like, okay, I can ask about this. Um, I don't know. I'll have to come back to it. Sure. But the, the but to, to, to kind of continue on that, like the, well, some of the big things right now is really going to be what happens with the fed going forward. Like what now do we have with the, you know, we talk about the RRP or the reverse repo, you know, you have billions, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars just, you know, leaving the market, but that has to come back. Like people look at the RRP and say, oh, well, the cat, the, the liquidity is gone. No, it's not. It is temporary. It's temporarily moved into another location, but it always comes back in because the bank, those are the bank's liabilities that they're parking somewhere. So when, when you look at what the Fed continues to do of 120 billion a, a month, when you look at the, you know, uh, the mortgage-backed securities they continue to buy, why? Like, why? What, 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 what is the rational goal? And we all know what it is. It's propping things up. It's, it's, it's whatever mantra it is uh, of the day. But we know at the end of the day, it's because they can't stop. 
because they know the moment the momentum turns, we're going to face a much bigger problem. Oh yeah. 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 You, you have to keep it. You have to keep it going. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's give. God, I had something I was going to ask you, but I can't, I cannot remember. Let's talk about China because sure. we've, we've got plenty to talk about there. Um, first let's break down the floods. What's going on there. Um, you've talked a lot about the crops in China, uh, the droughts, any, um, what would you read on the floods, uh, the dams? There's a lot to unpack here. I'll let you kind of take it from where you want to, but this also hit the the long-term impacts. Um, will this have any positive? I know there, there, there's traumatic loss of life, so mm-hmm. I don't to miss that. But you know, will this refill some aquifer somewhere that may help them with their crop production, or is it just too fast, too furious, and, and it's just gone? Well, and, and I, I think you bring up the, the last point is key. It's too fast, too furious. And this is the issue that that we always come down to where there, I mean, there's some locations that within three days got their annual water flow. Uh, you know, those are the types of situations where the soil, the the aquifers, the rivers are just not, they don't have the capacity to handle that kind of volume that quickly. So then you create landslides, you then saturate and destroy crops because when you flood crops to that point, you, the crop dies, there's, there's rot, the root rot, there's all types of situations that become in a, a much bigger issue. So when you look at the crop side, that's where now they were expecting to see a much bigger yield. They were expecting to see a bit, not, I don't want to call it a bumper crop, but a more normal yield versus what they had last year. And now those the, those visions of of normalcy are, are completely washed away, no pun intended. And the bigger issue now is it's becoming more prevalent, and that's that's the bigger concern because a lot of these dams were were built to create re- reservoirs to try to build up some of this capacity, and they really weren't meant to handle this continuous flood water. that that's trying to hold back. Like there are several dams that are completely fully open. They're not even trying to slow down some of this capacity because they just physically don't have the means to do it without creating structural failure. And that's, I, I, you know, we've already seen several dams uh, have structural failure to the point of complete collapse. And this is going to become a much bigger problem because the issues that where a lot of these the provinces that are seeing these uh, areas. So there's uh, something called the LGFVs, which is is just essentially local government, uh, you know, financing vehicles. So a lot of these provinces that are seeing massive flooding and the destruction of crops actually have to roll a lot of that debt. So not only are you having to to deploy capital to help those in need to 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 try to to save people, fix things but you're also going to lose tax revenue because these are the people that can't sell crops. Instead of actually selling the crops, you're going to have to provide crop insurance. You know, instead of seeing some of these facilities that are going to throw off, you know, 20, $30 million in tax revenue. Now they're, they've been shut down for eight weeks and they're going to need to uh, you know replace everything on the machinery floor, uh, the machine floor, because it's all down. Da- it's all water damage. So all of a sudden you have a much bigger issue in terms of what they're going to be able to do on the, on rolling that debt, getting new debt. And that's where the the government has to step in and say, look, we're going to provide some financing. So when you look at the triple R cut or the reserve, uh, reserve uh, requirement ratio, that 
was more along the lines of providing enough liquidity to backstop the banks, not so much to stimulate the economy. And I think that is lost in translation because we view the triple R as something a bit different. And that's where they're going to have to get more creative to provide that support because not only are you going to see crop loss, but these individuals lost jobs, lost wages, and they're already struggling because they really haven't come out of COVID yet or the COVID slump, whatever we want to call it, which is just going to be a even bigger drag on the municipality, provincial, and, uh, and just federal government. The, the Chinese, I think, are going to find themselves in a tough spot because it's easy. I, I'm reading um, Peter Martin's book, um, China's Civilian Army. I don't know if you've read that or not. Anyways, mm -hmm. um, and you know, he talks about kind of how they were handling stuff back. Uh, through the Mao era, and it's kind of funny reading some of the stuff they did back then is the same stuff they're doing today. But anyways, um, right. it's one thing. If you're Kim Jong-un, you have a very small piece of property that you're managing, and it's extreme poverty that you're keeping people. So just above that is kind of the goal, right? Mm -hmm. you know, some will defect and want to run away, but by and large, you keep the top fat cats happy, the bottom cats just give them enough. What China did when they moved all these people from abject poverty into these super cities is they changed the game. And now you're at a spot to where these people, what uh, just above that won't work anymore. They, you know, they want to kind of have, um, they want to kind of have, um, you know, their current standard of living. They want to live where they're at. They want to may maybe get something nicer, or they may say, well, if the government did this, uh, I don't really want to work that hard because the government had to take care of it. It's not the same when you're managing wealthy, I'm, I'm putting wealthy, uh, relatively mm -hmm. speaking, wealthy people as it is, people in poverty and so you take a disaster you take a covid year you take a, a shrinking population i just don't see i, I know people are, are scared to death of china to me they have so many things working against them i don't see much about it well and then you look at the at the at the business side so the big some of the biggest issues that we've seen so far when you look at at china itself uh, is on the small is on the micro cap the small and medium uh, cap uh, companies where they they just don't have the funding. CapEx has been cut. They're not hiring. You know they're struggling under this this the pressure of not only just a slowing economy, but also you know the internals that we've talked about with some of these uh, issues on on uh, employment, some mm -hmm. of the issues on floods, where the large caps aren't seeing that same type of issue, and and, and not to say that they're not they're they're not booming, but they're also not struggling to the same uh, perspective. And and that's some of the things that the that the Chinese have and the PBOC uh, specifically have come out and said we need to do more to support them. Which I still think you're that's where you're going to see some of the stimulus. It's going to be more targeted, just because they they can't risk getting those credit impulses too high again because they're really stuck with with what they're what they're sitting in just because there's so much debt to GDP at this point. And then you you parlay that into the US and you look at what's happening in the US right now, it's something very similar. Like when you look at the mega caps, I mean they're crushing it. Like they're fine. But then you look, you you know, you go to, to you drive down Main Street, you go to you know your local mall and 30 to 40% of storefronts are empty and there's really no chance in the next six months, somebody's going to pick up that, that storefront. So you're seeing a, a similar backdrop. It's just, so we're having similar problems, but how we address it, yeah. I think is really going to dictate how we're going to succeed or fail over the next 20 years. 
And I think this is this is why I talk about the Fed and and where we are right now. We need to have a real gut check of are we going to let the business cycle move its way through? Bankruptcy is okay. You know, we we've we've learned time and time again it's okay to file for bankruptcy. If it's a good idea, you will get financing. You will get a a pick. You'll get a bridge loan, and you'll come out on the other side. And if it's not, you go into liquidation. And <clears throat> the people that provided that debt. I'm sorry, you took a risk, you lost, you know, this is what you could liquidate with, move on and do better due, dil due diligence. Where in China, it's it, they're trying to do something similar. They're trying to avoid the, the, uh, the bailout. You know, we look at Evergrande, you look at some, you know, you look at Yorong, you look at all of these different things. It's just, they're experiencing something similar to our 07, 08, where we didn't appreciate all of this off balance sheet debt. And I think we've gotten smarter on that sense, not to say perfect, but smarter on that. And, and I think China's trying to get their, their, wrap their hands around how much off balance sheet debt do we really have? And I think they continue to be surprised at how much is sitting there. How many tech billionaires can they crush though before <laughs> like that, that, they, that works against them? Uh, well, I, I think that's where, uh, again, the innovation side comes through. And, and this is where, you know, I mean, obviously I'm American, so I'll, I'll be a bit skewed on this, but this is where America has that capacity because we appreciate patents. We appreciate, you know, the, the, the IP side of the equation much more than what they do in a, uh, in a, chi in a, in a Chinese type uh, economy. And I think that's some of the things that if you incentivize that, if you protect that, not to say I'm a, I'm against having a conversation about breaking up some of the tech boom that we've seen in the U.S., but it, it's to your point on you don't crush the the people who created it because you want to incentivize them. You want them, you want people to build, create, do like I'm okay with people getting rich on their ideas mm -hmm. because if they're getting rich on their ideas, it's because the market likes it and mm -hmm. is willing to pay for it have at it. Like I'm okay with that. When you try to skirt, you know, taxes and, 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 you know, take advantage of other startups, I start to have a problem, but I'm okay with people getting rich. Like I, I hell, I, I mean, I I'd love to get rich. I'm, I'm here to find a way to do that, That's but right. it, it's, it's just getting smart and trying to create something that somebody's wants some content or some product and that's where China has been struggling. And now, you know, the Russia came into something similar China has the opportunity. Do they either go more democratic or do they tighten up and become more communist? And if you look at the Dang's view was let some get rich. That mm -hmm. was his, that was his view. Let some get rich because we need that. Mm -hmm. And now they're pivoting away from that and, and playing up Mao and playing up the community and playing up, you know, everybody benefiting and they're essentially doubling down on communism where they were kind of moving away from that. And, and now as you start to see that pivot, I think that's where you're going to start to see those pressures coming in and you'll start to see, well, if I'm Chinese and, and I'm getting my PhD at Stanford in, I don't know, biomechanics, right. am I really going to go back to China to invent something or am I going to stay in America or am I going to go to somewhere in Europe or am I going to go somewhere else in Southeast Asia because I might, I might have family in Vietnam and, and I like where they're going and I'm going to go, I'm going to take my PhD because let's be fair, a Stanford PhD is, is transferable and MIT, you know, degree is transferable. Everybody in the world's going to want you 
So why am I going to go back and, and possibly get my idea stolen? Okay. Agreed. Um, let's see here. We've got a question. How does Mark feel about the Olympics? <laughs> so the, I've always been an Olympics fan and, oh, and Mark, I've, come on now. I've always been an Olympics oh. fan. I, I've always appreciated it. it. It's just, when you look at what it was, it was very forced. Uh, I don't think there was a lot of buy-in given where people sat in, in the world, but I, at the same time, I, I appreciate that it's unfair to the, um, uh, to the athletes. And, and there's, there's something that has to be said about, you know, these people want to compete. We want to see them compete and we want to see them succeed and, and whatnot. It's just, we're watching the failures continue on the home country or the hosting country. And we have to really address, you know, what is you know, not to say that every country has to get rich on the Olympics, but the, it can't be the same type of drain. And, and I think we're, we also have to be serious with, what or how do we treat human rights? Because, you know, on one side, we're sanctioning China for human rights. Mm -hmm. But then on the other side, we're, we're welcoming them into the Olympics where, you know, and, and again, we've, you, we we're can talk about, Olympics. yeah, but then we can talk about the USSR where mm -hmm. we're then right. Nazi Germany. And they, like, so there's precedent where we, we look past some of this to try to create unity through sport. And unfortunately, I, I think that there's going to become a, a much bigger problem on a broader uh, viewpoint. Yeah. So we, we were on the show this morning and the Olympics came up. And I'm just not an Olympics person. So track and field, like the, the 100 meter dash. OK, I'll watch that. Uh, I'm, you know, if if Michael Phelps is racing in the pool, I'll watch him. Mm -hmm. uh, but handball, surfing rock climbing it feels like they just went out and said hey we've got two or three cool sports let's literally try to get everything we can to make it olympic sport so we have something that's two weeks long because most of these sports listen they're better athletes than me they're more talented than me i get all that i'm not denying any of that but let's be honest you would never watch synchronized swimming on your saturday off you're like well let's just turn on uh espn 27 and you know it's just they're just they're, they're irrelevant. So um, I don't really get into it much. The figure skating, I don't watch that. You know, the, so the several Olympics, there's one or two sports. The Winter Olympics, you know, you know, it's like the like the um, like the basketball. Um, I'm not going to watch the U.S. team play. I can't imagine they'd have to be like down by ten in the gold medal game for me to turn it on because they should win by forty. You know, and so, but they lost. And, and it's just. Saying. Well, that's why I, I do like watching the amateurs or, you know, amateur is relative, but, you know, yeah. people who are just great at their craft. And, and I think that there is a lot to be said about watching someone who's great at what they do. And, and, and you, know, you know, Simon Biles is is one example of someone where, uh, unfortunately, she got injured. You know, she had trouble and, and you know, this will probably be her last Olympics. But watching someone that good compete. Like, I don't care if you like gymnastics, don't like gymnastics, watching her do her thing is just amazing. And that's where, like, we watch fencing and, and we're, I'm watching fencing. And I mean, how often do I watch fencing? But watching this one woman, uh, the, the U.S. individual who I think was the first gold medal the U.S. has ever won on men and women, she was unbelievable. And watching her at her craft was fascinating. Now, would you ask me, oh, Mark, it's Friday at 8 p.m., Let's go watch collegiate fencing. No, <laughs> but watching this person that you're, you're seeing this like, and I, I mean, I couldn't tell you the first thing about fencing. 
Mm -hmm. But the way she was parlaying, the way she was moving her feet, you could tell that she had the edge. And mm -hmm. just learning something like that and, and watching people come together, you know, is is a nice thing to, to try to teach, especially when you look at, you know, what's coming and, and how things are shifting in the world today. And, and you know, I, I, I do like watching the Australians in the U.S. get together and <laughs> compete against each other, but I'm actively rooting against some countries more than others. But, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, I, I suppose if I had kind of a group of multinationals and we could sit around and, like, you know, go at each other during, um, you know, a fencing match or a surfing or whatever, that would make it a little bit more fun. But, um, no, I just, I just don't get into it. When I was younger, much younger, I used to, but then as I've gotten older, I just – and you know, and the other point you make, explain something about Big Orton. Big Orton watches my podcast, and I've wondered why. But as you just said, to hear someone who's so great at their craft, you have to tune in, and so that's why Big Orton is is a, is a watcher of this program. He he sees the master at work, and he just can't he can't help himself. And so I've wondered, but that that explains that. that so it makes you. sense. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. So thank you. As you say, you're a good talking head, so that's yeah, important. That's, that's, that's the only thing I'm good at. So, okay, Mark, I'm gonna let you go with this. Give our listeners a book to read between now and the next time you come on. I know a you got book. like a stack of 5 billion, but this, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to, th so the, uh, um, trying to think of the one that I'm, I'm reading now or, or one. Uh, so uh, this is one that I've told everybody. And I, I think it gets to what we've talked about is prisoners of geography. Uh, prisoners of geography is the one that I would have everybody read. Um, those that, that when, it's one of the better books, the best books I've read in, in the last four years, because I think it really simplifies how tribes were formed, how geography shapes those tribes and those, you know, the natural resources, you know, speaking to droughts, you know, there's a lot that comes into waterways, you know, how important waterways are, you know, fresh, uh, you know, ports in terms of port access, uh, mountain ranges versus plains. I think that becomes very important, especially when you're looking at simplifying things to simple, stupid on when, where does the world go? Like you talked about war, you know, things that are, that mm -hmm. are hard to predict, but I can assure you when people can't drink water or eat food, they are way more likely to go to the most extreme yeah. <clears throat> level possible to address their failings or their shortfalls that, you know, if, if I can go across this arbitrary line and kill that guy and take his food to feed my family. You know, that's why that quote is always one of my favorites where, you know, I don't hate the man in front of me. I just love those behind me really speaks volumes when my family can't eat. And, and I think that is where that's a very good book to introduce the importance of arable land. Uh, you know, the ability to like the 15 inch line within China and, and the problems because a large part of China is, is desert you know, frankly, and that becomes an issue to feeding the largest population in the world. And when then you talk about people that were moved to that urban setting, well, a lot of that urban setting is on the arable land because, to, you know, shocking where you can grow food, you can also grow humans, mm -hmm. you know, so there's, there's a lot of reasons why you have that situation. And I think prisoners, it, it's written by a gentleman who I believe is a wall street journal, um, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he writes, so it's written very, it flows very well. It's only, I think 250 pages and it's, it, I think it simplifies things to their most basic grassroots level. That is something. There's, there's four of that series, right? 
I, I think so, but I, Prisoners of Geography is is the uh, is the one right now. And then we can get more in depth on uh, on trade wars. Uh, there's a, a trade wars book that that I'm reading right now that I got for Christmas, and I'm just finally getting to it. And then I'm actually reading one that is um uh, it's a it, it's 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 by the gentleman who wrote um, The Devil in the White City. I think it's called The Vial and the Stand, and it, it's about essentially Eric the, Larson. Uh, yes, yes, Eric Larson. So it's his most recent book about the German offensive against the UK and Churchill. Man, his book, uh, Dead Wake. Have you read Dead Wake? Yes. Oh, God. Yeah, it's Let fantastic. Blow in the water. It's like, yep. it's like the worst. It's so, I listened to it. And so you got a narrator. And so it wasn't dramatized, thankfully, but mm -hmm. just the stories of people going in the water and just how brutal that was. Oh, man. That was, that was, it was a great book. Great book. Yep. It was, he did a good job of actually bringing you to the moment of uh, what happened there. So, uh, okay. All right, with that, Mr. Rosano, tell people where they can find you at. So you can find me on Twitter uh, at Mark FNY. Uh, you can find me on my YouTube channel, which is uh, Primary Vision Network or PVN Network. Or you can just reach me by my email, which is mrosano at c6capital.com. Uh, All right. Well, Mr. Rosano, we thank you again for your monthly appearance. Look forward to seeing you again next month, listeners. Uh, thank you. We did this live on YouTube. I'll link to the YouTube. I know we don't really push YouTube stuff much, but we're trying to push it a little bit more. But anyway, so for the audio folks out there, if you want to see my beautiful face or Mark's young <laughs> face, Mark's looks really young today, I told him. Uh, they need a haircut. I'm going right after this. <laughs> we'll link to that in the show notes, uh, and we'll talk to you next time. Sounds good. Thank you.